Good morning. We begin a new series of sermons today here at the Christmas time. We're going to be taking a look at the virgin, the great Bible doctrines of Christmas, including the virgin birth of Jesus, the blood atonement, the inspiration of scriptures, and the sovereignty of God. That's kind of the sermon titles for the next four weeks. Today, we are taking a look at the virgin birth of Christ. One of the great Bible doctrines is the virgin birth of Christ, also one of the central doctrines to all Christianity. So take your Bibles. We're going to take a look at several verses of Scripture. They'll also be on the screen. But in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, and verse 15, God is cursing the serpent that deceived Eve, and, and among other things that he is saying there. But in verse 15, the very first prophecy in the Bible about the coming of Christ, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." The very first announcement of Christ is found in that verse. And it says he would be the offspring of a woman. It's interesting, it doesn't say he would be the offspring of a man. It doesn't say the seed of a man. It says the seed of the woman, but it's the man that has the seed. And while this doesn't explicitly exclude a male parent, it's significant, I think, that the Bible does not mention a male parent, the first time that Jesus is mentioned. And this indeed is a prophecy also of the virgin birth of Christ. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. A virgin will be with child. And she will call his name Emmanuel. So hundreds of years before Christ was ever born, some 600 years, Isaiah the prophet says, the Lord will give you a sign, a virgin will have a child, he'll be a son, she'll call him Emmanuel. And then we come to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so we see a little bit more of the story developed there. And then we come to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, where it says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now why is is the virgin birth so important? Why is it so crucial? Well, I can think of one major reason right off the bat, and that is this. If Jesus is not virgin-born, he's not God. If there's no virgin birth, you don't have Jesus as God. And if Jesus is not God, then all that he said is a lie. If Jesus is not God, then everything he taught is not true. If Jesus is not God, then the life he lived here on earth is a fraud. If Jesus is not God, every promise that he made is worthless. Think about it. If if there's no virgin birth, if Jesus is not God, what does that do to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and our salvation? If there's no virgin birth, what does that do to the validity of the scriptures? They were wrong. What does that do to the necessity of the church? If there's no virgin birth and Jesus is not God, what does that do to our promise of eternal life and any other promise that's in the Bible? If there's no virgin birth, what does that do to your life and mine? What does that do to our world? What does that do to our future? What does that do to our hope? You see, that's why the liberals and the infidels fight so hard to remove the nativity scenes at Christmas. That's why the liberal theologians ignore it and deny it and attempt to say it's irrelevant. Because you see, if you can remove the virgin birth, then you're under no compulsion to obey anything else that Jesus had to say. He's just another good teacher that had some guys that followed him, just another guy that had a book. But if there is a virgin birth, and my friends, there is, then Jesus is God. You see, if the virgin birth is true, and it is, it changes everything radically. Let me give you three things it changes. Number one, it changes our view of Scripture. Because if the Bible can be trusted when it talks about the virgin birth, it can be trusted when it talks about everything else. Secondly, it changes our worldview, our philosophy. I mean, if God could invade our world, if he could come and invade our world and allow someone to have a spirit-inspired baby, if God can do that, if he can invade the laws of the universe, if he can just set aside all that stuff and do what he pleases, if God can do that in the virgin birth, he can do anything. And he can certainly help me with the problems in my life. And a third thing is that it changes our view of Jesus. Because if the virgin birth is true, and it is, then Jesus is God and is uniquely set apart from every other human being that ever lived. But how do we know? How do we know the virgin birth is true? I want to call four witnesses this morning to your attention, all found in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew... Chapter 1, we have the first witness or testimony. It's the testimony of Scripture. Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23 says, The Bible says, All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that's a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about 600 years before Christ ever comes. Matthew comes along, writes his gospel, and he records the reality. Matthew says that what Isaiah said took place. And so we have the testimony of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we can trust what the Scripture says about the virgin birth. You see, when, when it comes to the testimony of Scripture, we can trust everything the Bible says. And it's not like some cafeteria where we get to pick and choose what we want, and then we don't have to obey the rest of it. Some people say, well, I'll take five out of the Ten Commandments. No, it doesn't work that way. Well, I'll take four of the Beatitudes. Uh-uh, can't do it that way. You take all of it or none of it. It's all the Word of God. You can't take the promise of eternal life. This is what the liberals do. They want to take the promise of heaven, the promise of eternal life, and say, yeah, we're going to heaven. But then they want to deny the virgin birth of Christ. You can't do that because the hope of eternal life is dependent upon Jesus being born of a virgin. You can't have one without the other. And so as Matthew says in verse 22, all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. We have the testimony of Scripture. We also have the testimony of Joseph. I think his testimony may be one of the most powerful. I read there in Luke a while ago, we had the testimony of Mary there. I didn't use that today because that's her talking about herself and some people would discount that. They would say, well, what do you expect her to say? But we've got a greater testimony, the testimony of her husband, Joseph. Think about this. The Bible says they were engaged to be married when the discovery was made. That's in verse 18. Now, I want to ask you a question. How big of a place do you think Nazareth was? Well, I'll tell you, it was a little village. It was a little village. It wasn't a booming metropolis by any means. Most of us were born in a small town or out in the country, right? Most of us here, maybe not all of us. And you know there is no way that anything happens in a small town without somebody knowing it. And once somebody knows it, everybody knows it. Sure. And in little old Nazareth, if anything was going on, if Mary was having an affair behind Joseph's back, somebody would know about it, and then everybody would know, and certainly Joseph would have known about it. So when Mary comes back from visiting her cousin Elizabeth, she's pregnant, and Joseph goes, what in the world? He knew she hadn't been with anybody else, in Nazareth anyway. And of course, she comes up to Joseph and says, well, you know, Joseph, God did this. If you were in a relationship and somebody came to you and told you that, would you believe it? You see, Jewish weddings had three stages. Number one was the contractual stage. 
that was the time when the parents would pick mates for their son or daughter, and, and it was a, 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 a contract, basically. The second stage was the betrothal stage, or the engagement stage. That's the time, as one man says, between the lipstick and the broomstick. All right? By the way, the engagement or betrothal stage was so binding in that time that to break it, you had to issue a certificate of divorce. The third part of the Jewish wedding was the marriage stage when the bride and the groom consummated their vows. But Mary and Joseph are in the betrothal stage, the engagement period when the discovery is made. And Joseph knew she hadn't been with anybody else, at least locally as far as he knew, but he knew she was pregnant. He didn't know how it had happened. And yet when Mary said, God did this, Joseph, the the Bible says, and we've got his testimony, the Bible says because he was a just man, he decided to divorce her quietly. Look at verse 19. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, a just man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. I believe he really loved this girl. I hope you can see that. That he really loved her. He said, I don't know how this happened. I don't know who's responsible for it. But I want to handle this in such a way that it doesn't expose Mary to public disgrace. He loved her. I wish Christians would love each other like that. That when there's a problem, we don't get on the phone and tell everybody else we can about it. I mean that we ought to love people enough to protect their integrity. Let them get right with God. It's, it's not an issue of this person messed up or that person messed up or this person did this or that person did this. That's not the issue. The issue is can we get people back on their feet so they can walk in grace and walk in glory and love Jesus. That's what the church is to be about. It's to be a hospital that deals with sick people, gets them well, gets them back on their feet doing what's right. It's what the church ought to be about. But Joseph loved Mary. He wanted to protect her. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. And his testimony gives a very strong evidence of the virgin birth. Thirdly, we have the testimony of the angel. Look at verse 20. When he had considered this, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So here's Joseph. He's formulated this plan. He loves her. He's going to do it quietly, going to do it quickly. He's sleeping that night. An angel comes to him and says, listen, Joseph, what Mary told you is true. Now, how do you think Joseph felt that night when he heard that news? I think it was the greatest news that he had ever heard. When he knew it was of God, when he knew it wasn't somebody else, when he knew she wasn't unfaithful to him, I think he jumped right up off that bed and said, all right, I can do this. Jesus had a supernatural birth. And there was no one on earth more glad to hear that than Joseph. Jesus had an earthly mother, but not an earthly father. He had a heavenly father, but not a heavenly mother. He was the only baby ever born that was older, to, older than his mother <laughs> and as old as his father. And what a father, the heavenly father. There are so many people in this world that have had disappointing failures as fathers on this earth. 
And you know what? God steps in and says, I'll be your father. I'll love you no matter what. I'll stand by you no matter how you fail. I'll be there when everybody else walks away. I'll be your father. If you're here this morning, you've had that kind of situation where you didn't have a good relationship with your father here on earth. God wants you to know this morning he'll be your father. Jesus' birth was a miracle. It was supernatural. And we have the testimony of the angel. But fourthly, we've got the testimony of history. Because what did Joseph do? What was his response? Here's the key to whether this virgin birth took place at all. Joseph's response in verse 24, Joseph arose from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Two important things there. One, as he takes her as his wife and takes her home, he's telling everyone in that community that Mary and I are married. She is my wife, which answered two questions. One, if people thought that the baby she was having, if something had gone wrong, Joseph is saying, look, I assume full responsibility for this. And number two, he's going to protect her now so that no one could dilute or hurt in any way what the Holy Spirit had shaped and formed inside of her. And I love the fact that Joseph said, I'll take her. You know, we ought to admire foster parents and those that adopt other children. Can you imagine being a child in an orphanage someplace or some kind of an institution? In walks a man and a woman. They walk in. They're willing to sign papers. They're willing to say, I'll be his dad. I'll be her mom. What do you think that does to those children? Children that have been abandoned, left for one reason or another, who don't have a mom or a dad, but somebody walks in and says, we'll stand for you, we'll take care of you. And what do you think that does when somebody you've been pledged to be married to and you make a mistake and they stand with you and say, listen, I'll stand up for you. Well, Mary hadn't made a mistake. Joseph might have thought that, but the angel cleared that up for him. But folks, I'm telling you, I think this is one of the most phenomenal marriage stories on the face of the earth in all of history. And I think it's one of the missed messages of Christmas that there was this incredible love relationship between Joseph and Mary and their care for this precious baby who would be the Messiah. And both of them knew and both of them testified there was a virgin birth. She said it, and he believed it. And notice what he did. He did three things. Number one, he believed the word of God. He believed the word. The Bible says the angel talked to him. When he woke up, he did what the angel said. I think we all need to wake up and do what God says. And let me ask you a question here. If Joseph believed in the virgin birth... Are you more qualified than he is to deny it? If Joseph believed in the virgin birth, what liberal theologian, what infidel is qualified more than Joseph to say, no, there's no virgin birth? I'm telling you, if Joseph believed in the virgin birth, and he did, and he acted upon it, then every one of us ought to line up behind him and say, well, I'm going to agree with Joseph. 
He's an eyewitness. He was there. He's a first-person testifier. He believed the Word of God. He acted upon it. And when he acted upon it and believed the Word of God, we can know for sure that it took place. There was a virgin birth. But secondly, not only did he believe the Word, he did the will. He did the will of God. Whatever God told Joseph to do, he did it. And it wasn't just here. You follow his life. God speaks to Joseph again. He warns Joseph, take the child of Mary, head to Egypt. Herod's coming after your son. And what did Joseph do about that? He didn't even pray about it. He just got up and he left and went to Egypt. And then when God told him in Egypt, go back home, Joseph, he went back home. And all those years in the carpenter shop, all those years teaching Jesus, fathering him, loving him, encouraging him, how would you do that knowing your son is the Messiah? Your son is God. But he did the will of God. He believed the word of God. He did the will of God. And thirdly, he honored the son of God. He honored Jesus by doing whatever he could for Jesus. And the Bible doesn't tell us much about the growing up years of Jesus. I wish the Bible told us more. We've only got the one account when Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem when he was about 12 years of age. And they have to come back and they find him at the temple speaking with the wise men of the day, confounding them with his knowledge and his wisdom. I wish we had some more accounts of their home life. Did Jesus go to synagogue school? And if he did, was he the smartest one in class? Smarter than the teacher, you know. Did, did, did Jesus and Mary and Joseph go on any vacations? Anything? I, I mean, I wish we had more. We don't. But folks, Joseph honored the Son of God. And these great Bible doctrines need to be important to you and I. Because if we miss the virgin birth, we miss what's really exciting about Christmas. Because it's not the gifts and trees and bulbs and lights and celebrations and the guy in the red suit. That's not it. It's that long ago on a night outside of a town called Bethlehem, the city of David, two people that were incredibly in love with each other took the steps God told them to take so that God could come down from heaven and take on flesh in the form of a little child and say, I'm here to change the world. And he did. He did. The virgin birth of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to say thank you. Thank you for becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you for the way you did it. Thank you for the people that were involved with that. We thank you that Joseph believed the word of God and did the will of God and honored the Son of God. Father, we're grateful for the one you chose uh, to be the mother, Mary, and how she honored you and believed in you. Father, help us not to waver in our faith upon your word, but to hold fast the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he is God in the flesh and that through him alone can we find forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And may we share that good news, even as the shepherds did, with all that we can. It's in his name we pray. Amen.